Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of HarperCollins. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. Walk the streets by moonlight if you dare and you will see sinners then. Watch when the night is dark and the wind is howling and the picklock is grating in the door, and you will see sinners then. Go to yon jail and walk through the wards and mark the men with heavy, overhanging brows, men whom you would not like to meet at night, and there are sinners there. Go to the reformatories and note those who have betrayed a rampant juvenile depravity, and you will see sinners there. Go across the seas to the place where a man will gnaw a bone upon which is reeking human flesh, and there is a sinner there. Go where you will. You need not ransack earth to find sinners, for they are common enough. You may find them in every lane and street of every city and town and village and hamlet. It is for such that Jesus died. If you will select me the grossest specimen of humanity, if he be but born of woman, I will have hope for him yet, because Jesus Christ is come to seek and to save sinners. Electing love has selected some of the worst to be made the best. Pebbles of the brook, grace turns into jewels for the crown royal. Worthless dross he transforms into pure gold. Redeeming love has set apart many of the worst of mankind to be the reward of the Savior's passion. Effectual grace calls forth many of the vilest of the vile to sit at the table of mercy, and therefore let none despair. Listener, by that love, looking out of Jesus' tearful eyes, by that love streaming from those bleeding wounds, by that faithful love, that strong love, that pure, disinterested, and abiding love, by the heart and by the bowels of the Savior's compassion, We plead that you turn not away as though it were nothing to you, but believe on him and you shall be saved. Trust your soul with him and he will bring you to his father's right hand in glory everlasting. From Morning and Evening by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, December 7th, Morning, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight. Base things of the world hath God chosen.
That may be the very best bit of not fiction I could possibly give you today. And the very best reason to be filled with anticipation this Advent season as Christmas approaches. That Christ died for sinners, of which I am the worst, and if you are honest, so are you. Look in the mirror, you will find a sinner there. But Jesus died for that sinner. That's good news, good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. And now let us turn our attention to just a handful of people in the great north woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where Trenton Marsh is running for his life. Previously on Clinch. Factoring in all the weekends and youth retreats he'd attended, this was probably the 20th time he'd been to Picture Falls but only the second time he'd been here without Judith. He missed her like crazy. Taking things off right now with no icebreakers and no nonsense. Throughout the morning, we'll be taking each of you one at a time on a unique personal challenge. Trent turned to follow the crowd, but Mike snagged his arm. Your first marsh, he said. Time to step up. I assume you've been up the devil's tail before, Mike said, without looking back at him. Oh, yeah, lots of times, Mike snickered. Well... This time might be a little different. If Cassell was going to hide something, this is where he'd have hidden it. I'm going to ask you this one more time, Mike said, reaching under his shirt and pulling a handgun from his waistband at the small of his back. Where's the diary, Trent? Shoulders in the direction of Mike's face and burst to his feet, tackling Sean from behind. The two of them hit the sand and immediately began picking up speed. Sean's head collided with the solid trunk crunching back against his neck. Sean was stirring now, and Trent made the hardest choice of his life up to that point. Forget the phone and get out of there. Clinch, a novel, chapter 21. Trent's legs were a great representation of Jackson Pollock's red period, if he had a red period, the result of hundreds of thorns, thistles, and vines snagging and scraping the flesh between his shorts and his shoes. He'd been through some poison ivy or poison oak, too, he was sure, as the skin was swelling and itchy. He tried to use the discomfort to push him forward, but it wasn't really working. He'd been slowing now for ten minutes as he cut through the woods, stopping every so often to listen for footfalls or snapping branches behind him. So far, so good. This was south, he thought, based on the position of the sun. Then again, it was early afternoon, and the ground was slanted down significantly, leaving Trent less than sure. If he was headed south, he should eventually emerge from the woods behind the boys' cabins. Of this, he was only slightly more sure. He stopped again, hunched over a felled tree, trying to catch his breath. Clarity of thought was slowly returning, but with it came the clear memory of Mike Van Buren's gun an inch from Trent's head, which did nothing to calm his nerves. Trent resumed his descent, picking each step carefully. He chastised himself for not taking the extra second to find his phone in Sean's red bag, or even just take the whole bag. Sure, the guy had been coming around, but Trent had every advantage— what he should have done, he was now realizing, in an exercise of perfect futility, was pull off Sean's belt and use it to bind his hands tightly behind his back. Maybe use the new t-shirt and his own backpack as a gag. Then he could have taken his time working through the red knapsack's contents. While he was rewriting history, perhaps he should have marked the very spot where Sean's gun had bounced off into the woods so he could go get it himself, even the playing field a bit. 
No, that was stupid. It was all stupid. Trent was lucky to be alive, and he knew it. There hadn't been room for anything more than bare survival in the moment. Besides, he was a terrible marksman with a gun. His dad had taken him to the shooting range a few times and let him burn through a few magazines with his service weapon. Trent consistently shredded the lower right corner of the paper target without ever breaching even the outer circle even once. Now stick to what you're good at, Marsh. With a gun, he was useless. But with a bow... Trent came to a stop. He could just barely see the stone chimney of one of the cabins, perhaps a quarter mile more down the hill. His original plan, which he had no memory of even making, was to return to camp get back in the midst of as many people as possible, but now he was rethinking that. The other campers were, as far as he knew, still off on a team-building activity with Jen, meaning Mike and Sean would be just as free to kill him on the dining hall porch as they were off the secluded trail by the falls. A new plan formed, a better one. He pushed forward, following the tree line about 50 yards back, rerouting as he went, He felt a second wind come upon him. Obviously, the winding, half-mile-long dirt drive into camp was not an option. Someone was sure to be watching it. But just beyond, he saw the wreck building. With the exception of the old Camp Mukwa ruins, it was the furthest removed of all the buildings on the property. It was also the newest. Trent's bearings were back now, and he closed in on the wreck building without so much as a wasted step. He hesitated before leaving the cover of the woods, but sheer necessity gave him that last burst of courage needed to rush out into the clearing over 30 feet of flat, open gravel and into the screened-off porch. He tried the main door into the structure, locked. Trent grabbed the cheap plastic lacrosse stick from a pile of them and punched it through the window. He then carefully reached in and disengaged the deadbolt. As the door swung open, Trent's spirits soared. He'd come here to arm himself, but now he remembered something even better. One of the camp's two phones was in this building. A ten-pound rotary job far older than the structure itself. Trent could call for help here. He'd dial 911 and summon the local sheriff. Then he'd call his dad's cell. And Judith, for some reason, that made perfect sense in the moment. Rushing down the hall to the small office, he grabbed the handset off the cradle and grinned at the sound of the dial tone. He shoved his finger into the nine and spun the wheel around to the stop. It seemed to take five seconds for the number to register as the rotor spun, creating nine individual clicks inside the antiquated device. It was actually making sparks in there, he thought, his finger poised ready over the one impatiently. Still, he couldn't help but love this old device that would bring help, probably save his life. Then the love disappeared as the dial tone persisted. That wasn't right. Trent tried dialing the nine again. Nothing, just more dial tone. It was a horrible realization. These old rotary phones apparently didn't work anymore with modern phone lines. Trent slammed the handset down as hard as he could, trying to push the rage and fear aside to free up some mental space. There had to be a way. He had a phone and a working phone line. All he needed was to dial zero, get an operator on the line, anything. Think, Marsh! His thoughts were derailed by the loud, almost violent ringing of the phone mere inches from his face. He snatched it up. Hello? Who is this? He shouted. I need help! A low chuckle creeped out of the earpiece. It's Mike. 
I was just going to give the boss an update, but now we know where you are. Trent froze. Anyone who knew the camp in the least knew that there were only two phones. One in the kitchen, one here in the recreation office. Campers weren't allowed in the kitchen, so anyone homesick or actually sick or surreptitiously calling a girlfriend back home had to do so in here. Of course, that was back when this phone could actually dial out. Hello, Trent. This is Brian, another voice said. Why don't you just stay there, okay? I'm sorry about the misunderstanding up on the trail. That's what I get for hiring local punks instead of professionals. You and I, though, we can work this out without threats or intimidation. I just want to know what you found in your home and what you did with it. You're a perfectly reasonable young man, aren't you? For a moment, Trent was tempted. Brian was incredibly approachable, after all, even friendly, and he was coming across as calm and rational, especially compared with his gun-toting henchmen. But then he remembered Ed Piper, and the attack on his father, and the fear in Zoe's eyes and voice. Trent could hear Mike's heavy breathing on the line. He was running from wherever he'd been, probably somewhere up the hill, down toward the wreck building, even now. Trent looked up at the crude map of the camp, framed on the wall. He guessed where Mike probably was, placing a mental dot moving slowly, and another dot at the kitchen where Brian Green must be. The wreck building was a third point, and connecting them resulted in a long isosceles triangle, which looked to Trent like an arrow pointing him off in the opposite direction. He dropped the handset, letting it swing, and rushed over to the equipment cabinet, where he grabbed a black compound bow and shoved two fistfuls of arrows into the zipper pouch at the front of his backpack. He pulled the pack over both shoulders and rushed out the back door, his senses on high alert. Trent began to climb once again, still seeing the map in his mind, his two pursuers converging behind him. He'd already taken one of them out, and that was before he had a weapon. One more, and he might not be outnumbered. Of course, that raised the question. Would he be able to fire an arrow into a human being? No, that wasn't the question. He'd be able, of course. Even under the pressure of competition, Trent couldn't seem to miss. But was he willing? He didn't know the answer. Shoving the thought away, he instead focused on the stupid irony that he was now again pushing his body to the limit, climbing the very same hill he'd just descended, albeit the other side of the hill. Somehow, though, it seemed easier going up than coming down. The ground here was covered in coarse moss rather than thorny ground cover, and he made quick progress. He was also making fewer rest stops, and in the midst of all this, another new plan was forming— as he climbed, he would cut in toward the river. When he reached it, he would double back, following the river down through the old camp to where it emptied into the lake. Yeah, the lake would be his ticket out. Trent had swum the lake four summers in a row and had no doubt he could do it again. The thought of pulling himself out into that vast body of water, disappearing from view, then coming to shore at some random point a mile away, appealed to him greatly. There were quite a few vacation homes on the other side. Someone was bound to be home, someone who had a phone from this century and who could call for help. Turning even more sharply toward the river, Trent continued his quick ascent. A glance at his watch told him he'd been at it for 25 minutes now, which was hard to believe. He should see the river any moment, right? It's not like he could miss it without swimming across. There, 
The sun glinted off the surface of the water as it rolled lazily downward. He began to run, closing in on it, sliding a bit down into the bank. Downstream, the river twisted and turned, not exactly the shortest distance between two points, but that was fine. As long as he hugged the edge of the familiar waterway, he'd eventually hit the lake and then disappear. An angry roar like a 200-pound bee filled the air behind him. Trent ducked behind a massive cedar and looked out toward the source of the noise. Oh, no. Trent punched the trunk of the tree in frustration and immediately regretted it. In the distance, he saw the camp's drone, affectionately named Dory. It was outfitted with a GoPro camera and had been used to create some downright impressive promotional videos for the camp the past couple of summers. Now Dory was being forced to hunt down one of her own, a camper, running for his life. Trent ducked down further and tried to strategize. As far as he remembered, the drone could only see what was directly beneath it. Still, it was moving fast and being piloted methodically back and forth. It was only a matter of time before Trent was spotted, and if Brian and Mike followed him out into the lake, he'd be a sitting duck. And then, in short order, a dead duck. Reaching behind him, Trent drew an arrow from his pack and knocked it into the bowstring. He drew it back and took aim at poor Dory. He'd hit moving targets before, but never moving this fast. The first shot sailed right past, at least ten feet shy. Trent corrected, mentally. He needed to lead it more. The next shot embedded itself in the drone's side, but had no effect on its flight. He waited for it to complete a pass over the hill and head back, now ten feet closer to his position, Trent that much closer to discovery. He took a deep breath and let it out. He felt the target approaching, anticipating its arrival and released another arrow. One of the drone's four rotors exploded from its mount, flitting down into the treetops beneath. The drone itself spun widely, out of control for a moment. It almost seemed like it might right itself when it, too, tipped and plummeted to the earth. Trent couldn't help but smile, smugly, although he did feel a pang of guilt for taking down Dory. Pulling the bow over his torso, he returned to the riverbank. Right where the water met the mud, he sloshed quickly ahead, following the water's flow toward the lake, toward freedom. It led him left around one bend and then right around another. Then he came to a sudden halt, his feet stuck in the muck beneath. Trent looked on in disbelief. Why did this keep happening? For every little victory, he was met with another crashing defeat, this one in the form of a crashing waterfall. Apparently, in his zeal, Trent had climbed quite a bit further than he thought, intersecting the river above the falls. Now that he was staring down at them, he clearly remembered hearing the growing white noise of the falls as he approached. In his tunnel vision, though, it hadn't registered just how fatal a flaw this was. Slowly, carefully, Trent waded into the midst of the river and shuffled toward the edge. He peered down. It was a 30-foot drop. At least, that's what he'd always been told. The rocky outcropping on either side was too steep and too irregular to try climbing down. Should he just jump? It didn't look much higher than the high dive at the community college in Big Rapids, and that had been downright fun. Then again, the water there had been incredibly deep. Looking down at the bubbling basin below, Trent had no idea how deep it might be. Found you! 
Trent turned to see Sean Taylor approaching along the west bank of the river, a nasty-looking hunting knife in his hand. His face was full of cuts, bruises, and dirt, and he walked with a slight limp. Still, the sight of him paralyzed Trent for a moment. Sean, I was afraid you were, like, you know, dead, he laughed. You wish. No, I, I don't, Trent insisted. I'm glad you're all right. Never give up, Sean said as he leapt onto a large, jagged rock cresting the water. Unless you're giving up giving up. He launched himself from the rock onto a tree root, which branched out into the river like a lightning bolt. It was slippery, and for half a second, Trent thought he might go down, but he righted himself, knife still clenched in his hand, eyes searching for the next stone or root. Trent looked behind him. He couldn't take even one more step in that direction without going over. He pulled the bow free and drew another arrow. Back off, he yelled, leveling the weapon at Sean. The young man sneered. (laughs) What are you going to do, Trent? Shoot me? You're going to put an arrow in me and watch me bleed out? His eyes lighted on a clump of small rocks just beneath the surface, another four feet closer. Trent drew back the arrow and released. It found its mark and drew a shriek from Sean, who crumpled to the ground. You shot me! He yelled, followed by a club mix of obscenity. The red vinyl bag slipped from his arm and dumped half its contents into the river before falling in itself. Trent drew another arrow, but could see immediately that he wouldn't need it. Sean was balled up, whimpering, his hands wrapped around the shaft of the arrow which had gone through his foot and buried itself in the tree root, pinning him in place. A thin rivulet of blood flowed through the water toward Trent, pulling with it the buoyant contents of Sean's backpack. My phone! Trent's eyes frantically searched the floating debris, coming at him quickly and all at once. There, a small object reflected sunlight up at him, and Trent slammed his hand down on it, remembering the arrow too late. Whatever it was, he'd punched right through it. Despair circled overhead as Trent forced his eyes to open, expecting the worst. But no, he hadn't killed his cell phone. Rather, he'd punctured a can of Blue Wolf chewing tobacco, stabbed the cartoon wolf right between the eyes. The red bag floated down, wrapping itself around Trent's ankles. It wasn't empty, meaning some hope of finding his phone remained... Trent grabbed up the bag just as Mike emerged from the trees opposite Sean. He leveled his gun at Trent and shouted, Drop it! Glancing over at Sean, he spat, Stand up, Taylor, for crying out loud. I can't, Sean gritted. My foot! Mike rolled his eyes and addressed Trent once again. I'm serious, Marsh. Dump the bow and walk toward me, slowly, or this is where you die. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. 
If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 